So sisters, let me pray. Father God, we come into your presence, Father. We need you so desperately, Lord. For you alone are God. All the things we carry with us, all the burdens, all the trials, everything. Please, Lord, set them aside for us this morning. And let us just be with you, hear you, know you're with us always. And we ask you this, oh God, in Jesus' name. Finally, a story. <laughs> right? Chapter after chapter of judgment of oracles and prophecies and that have been deep valleys of gloom and despair which occasionally have risen to bright promises of hope and glory but at last we've come to this day and um, Janice outed me <laughs> when she said Donna is just real tired of judgment <laughs> I'm like yeah I'm like, uh, teaching on chapter after chapter of that and it's all really you know it gets us ready to hear the next half of Isaiah. All that really makes us ready to hear of what God has, has promised us and where he's going and what his what his plan is. It's going to unfold in the second half of Isaiah. So glad. So these four chapters are the pivot point and um, they comprise the pivot upon which this entire book turns. So... These four chapters illustrate, by the way, what four chapters? Chapter 36, 37, 38, 39. Okay, just so we know where we're at. They illustrate the issue that Isaiah has been hammering on for the past 35 chapters. It's the issue of trust and where we place it. Where they place it and where we place it. Interestingly, these chapters are not arranged chronologically. But they're arranged thematically. If they were arranged chronologically, we'd read 38, and then 39, and then 36, and 37. But I'm going to start with chapter 38, because I'm going to do this chronologically. I think chapter 38 and 39 sort of set up chapters 36 and 37, so we're going to start there. Chapter 38 is like a flashback. And it tells of a mortal illness that befell King Hezekiah, the king of Judah. As it unfolds in light of the other chapters, we see that that this is the crisis behind the crisis of chapter 36. It's an illness that brings Hezekiah face to face with his mortality. And it places him on a razor's edge. Essentially, he's been told that he is going to die from this illness. He turns his face to the wall and weeps bitterly, but he doesn't stop there. You know, what I think is so interesting when I was reading this, I was going, he turned his face to the wall. I mean, when if you were to do that, and you were to turn your face to a wall, what does that say? It says, there's no place to go. There's There's no one who can help me. Right, doesn't it? You know, you're not looking over your shoulder. You can't find anywhere to go. You turn your face to the wall. And he knows it's over. 
and he weeps bitterly. And then he does the thing that these four chapters are really all about, as Marcia said. He prays. He says, Remember, O Lord, how I have always been faithful to you and have served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. And he had, because his father, King Ahaz, had really led the people away from the worship of Yahweh. They were very lost. Uh, they were very far away from him. They were uh, had established all these altars wherever they were, even though the law says, you got to come to Jerusalem. Uh, and they were worshiping the gods of the culture, the cultures that surrounded them. Any god would do, you know, whichever one would get them what they think they need. Um, so he, he, if you read, and Bob and I did, we sat, and it was no little thing that Hezekiah had done before this news of, of his illness. You can read about it in Second Chronicles 29 through 31. It's a long read, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, his efforts to get the people to turn back to the worship of God were absolutely Herculean. They, he, it took a lot. And he was relentless in getting them to, he destroyed all those altars. He brought them to Jerusalem. He had them engage in worship. It reminded me, actually, of how Nehemiah did it. Remember last year when we studied Nehemiah? It was, it was really kind of the same thing. It was huge. They were so far from the Lord. The temple was in, Bad condition, and none of the none of the the things that the Lord had, had uh, established with the people had been done for a long time. So, knowing this, Isaiah says, "Remember, O Lord, here I am. I've tried so hard. I've tried so hard to be faithful to you. I've done what you asked. I've turned the people. I've." I've done everything. Remember how I, I've been faithful and, and served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. He must have been so confused. The reward for his for sorry, the reward for his obedience was what? Mortal illness? No wonder he wept bitterly. It's why he asked God to remember. And God answers. And he says, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will rescue you. And this city from the king of Assyria, I will rescue you from this, I will rescue Jerusalem, this city also, from the king of Assyria. And I'm like, huh? I thought this was about an illness. Well, it is about an illness. But as is God's all-knowing way, it's not just about an illness of body. It's about an illness of soul. And in order to understand that, you need to know a little bit more about this backstory. Whether he intended it or not, at this time in history, Hezekiah had become the leader of the anti-Assyrian coalition in southern Palestine. Um, You will recall in previous chapters that his father, King Ahaz, when he was faced with the, the threat of an attack by Syria and Israel, t- 
turned to Assyria for help. But Assyria, and Assyria did help, but Assyria exacted a heavy burden of taxation against Judah. So when there was later, so uh, Judah is paying this annual heavy, heavy tax to Assyria, but then there was this uh, trouble in Assyria. They kind of were going through a transition of, of power and leadership, and uh, and some of these nation states thought, oh, this is our opportunity to scramble out from underneath this oppression. So Babylon did, and Judah did too. And, uh, and um, Hezekiah made a big mistake. He's like, I don't want to pay this heavy tax anymore, so I'm going to stop paying it. I'm just going to stop. And I'm going to align myself with a coalition that are, that's an anti-Assyrian coalition. And Egypt was in there, and Babylon comes to visit in chapter uh, 39 because they want to be in league with this anti-Assyrian movement. And Judah and other small states in the region, they were kind of together. So... Um, Here's Hezekiah, uh, and when we open up, uh, he's in pretty high spirits because he's been healed. God has healed him. And when 39 opens up, we see that um, that uh, God, uh, Babylon has sent an envoy, and uh, Hezekiah is going to entertain them. And the envoy brings letters and gifts, and this is when they make that move to make an alliance with Judah against Assyria. And they did it at this time. Oh, believe me, they were thinking about it for a long time because Babylon's not very strong right now. But the reason why they did it at this time is because they knew that Hezekiah was uh, on a high. You know, he would be amenable to them. He would listen. He was feeling good. He was healed of a mortal illness. And so Hezekiah, in his happiness, makes a hasty alliance with Babylon. And I think that exposes his soul sickness. It's not just his. It was everybody's soul sickness. And his soul sickness is this. And I think, when I think about my own soul sickness, it's probably the same. He does not trust in God alone. And sisters, we're often like this. It's always, yeah, God plus something else. Or God and something, someone, something. We're that kind of people. We put our trust in God, oh yes, but not in God alone. And we now know that Babylon, because we, you know, we know, hindsight is twenty twenty. we know that Babylon one day carries off all of Judah into exile. Their friend. Isaiah is relentless in hammering home the message that whatever we put our trust in instead of God himself will eventually turn on us and destroy us. How? Because it corrodes our soul. So this made me think, I could the way that God in all those previous chapters had kind of been dealing with the region, it made, it, one day I woke up and I was just thinking about this story I read, this 
crazy passage, but it was a real real, uh, engagement of how this horse master trained a horse without touching the horse, but broke a wild horse and made uh, him the master of the horse without touching it, not with cruelty, but with this method. It was really interesting. So I'm going to tell you about it. It was a passage that described how he broke the horse without using force. He was kind of like a horse whisperer. Well, the horse that he's trying to break is very dependent on its herd that it's been with. Uh, And while uh, in training, in the training corral for the first time, it's constantly looking over its shoulder and whinnying to the herd in the other pen. That's who has its attention. And that's who he's communicating with. And the master's goal is to train the horse to depend on him alone. So, he makes some noises that kind of startle the horse because the horse is so focused on this other group of in the other corral that he tries to run away. He hears this noise and he tries to run from the noise and he'll go part way around the corral or pen or maybe all the way around several times and then the master steps in his path and blocks him and makes the noise again, the noise that he's afraid of right now. And then he turns and he goes around the other way, around and around, and it goes on. And each time, the horse trainer will step towards the horse, and the animal will change directions in its efforts to run away. And and then in response to the question of whether whether the animal, um, whether or not the master will do something aggressive to hurt the horse, he says uh, that he will never hurt him, ever. But the horse will begin to hurt himself His lungs and his legs from his endless running will begin to hurt and ache and all he will want to do is rest. That becomes the focus. That forget those horses in the other pen. I'm tired and I'm desperate to rest. And each time the horse turns, he turns, uh, like try to imagine going around and when he makes a turn, he turns away from the master, not towards him. You know, if you think about ways, like if I'm going to turn away from you to turn around, I'm going to do this. If I don't have, I don't have to look at you. But the first thing the master wants him to do is when he turns around, he wants him to look at him. So, after a few more times of running, let's see, wait a minute, I'm back up. Um, so that's what happens. He always turns away from the master until he doesn't. And when he turns towards the master for the first time, then the master knows that soon they will begin to communicate. After a few more times of running, the horse stops. And he turns and he looks at the master with his sides heaving. And then he stands still as the master approaches, for by now all he wants is rest. And the master gives him rest. And then the horse walks toward the master and the master puts his hand on him for the first time. And then he follows him. I feel like that horse running ceaselessly and looking over my shoulder for someone to help me. My master just waits for me to look at him to stop, to find rest in him. 
We just sang about it. My soul finds rest in God alone. My rock and my salvation. And Hezekiah is soon to have an enemy at his gate. This experience with illness has put him in a place where he engaged with his master. Perhaps for the first time he did all that good stuff. But did he engage with the master? I'm not sure. Through this illness, God got his attention. He looked at him. He prayed. He gave up because he didn't have anywhere to turn. And when he turned his face to the wall, he was no longer looking around for those who could help him because no one could. No one but the master. I love these words that he wrote in his poem of praise when he was well again. He said in verse 14, I'm in trouble, Lord. Help me. In verse 15, now I... I will walk humbly throughout the years because of this anguish I have felt. Yes, this anguish was good for me, for you have rescued me from death and forgiven all my sins. That word anguish. My husband said at one time, we were, we pray for a lot of people, and he said about one person, he said, they are in anguish. And I thought, that word you're right that's a great description even the sound of it elicits feelings associated with times of excruciating distress and suffering anguish comes from the Latin word anguista and it literally means a tight place a place where there's so much squeezing and so much pressure that one can hardly breathe let alone move it's like being caught in a vice well, chapter 36, which is, which is where we're going to land, and we're going to spend time on 36. It opens up, and Hezekiah finds himself in that place of anguish. He finds himself in a tight place. Sennacherib, the current king of Assyria, has come to take his revenge on all of those who attempted to break free of his rule and rebel against him. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of, little nations um, including Judah and Hezekiah as we know is one of those nations like pawns on a chessboard Sennacherib has destroyed all of Judah's fortified cities so try to imagine Jerusalem's surrounded by these fortified cities so they should be able to defend Jerusalem where the king is it's like a chessboard it reminded me of a chessboard as I was reading through it and Sennacherib's destroyed him. Just gone. He took that pawn, he took that pawn, he took that pawn. Jerusalem. So, uh, Hezekiah, in his attempt to appease Sennacherib, which is his first thought, he knows he hasn't paid him for a long time, so he runs around trying to get enough gold and silver to pay back the tribute. He said, okay, you know, I'm going to pay up here. I'm sorry, sorry. But Sennacherib, oh no, he's going to teach Judah a lesson and he intends to punish him and he begins with psychological warfare tactics. Through his verbal assault, which begins in verse 4, he intends to loosen their resolve, to corrode their confidence and to instill fear in them. And he, or rather his chief of staff, he speaks their language. 
He bypasses the Aramaic language of the diplomats and officials, which the people in Jerusalem don't understand, and he talks directly to the people in Hebrew. And what he says, I found myself gobsmacked when I read these words. He says, who are you trusting in that makes you so confident? In verse 5 he says, who are you counting on that you rebelled against me? And then he stands there and he says, Egypt, is it Egypt? Egypt is weak. And it's true, Egypt is weak compared to Assyria. And then he makes this huge mistake because he misunderstands what happened with Hezekiah and destroying all the altars in the hills and making them to come to Jerusalem. But he thinks that Hezekiah uh, has um, insulted their God. So he says, if they're relying on the Lord their God, well, Hezekiah just insulted him by tearing down all of his places of worship because he doesn't understand that was a, a reform measure. And anyway, he says, and the other nations, hey, they relied on their gods, and look where it got them. Um, He says that they shouldn't trust in the Lord. And he says, Hezekiah has deceived you. He says that they should trust themselves to the the terms of the great king. Who's the great king? Well, it's not the Lord. It's the king of Assyria. Assyria will guarantee their prosperity. So, you guys know I really love this commentary that I found. It reads like a devotional, and I spent so much time in here because Barry Webb is awesome. And so, if you hear me say words that are just too cool, it's because it's a direct quote, as you know. Okay. Well, I'm just going to say he puts it this way. Quote, This speech is a classic study in the satanic art of sowing doubt and unbelief through subtly twisting the truth. It's so persuasive precisely because it contains so much that is true. But the basic premise is false. Namely, that the Lord has forsaken Judah and therefore trust in him is futile. It is always Satan's way, and this is the stuff he puts in there that I so love, He says, it is always Satan's way to make us think that God has abandoned us and to use logic woven from half-truths to convince us of it. The truth, however, is that the Lord has brought Judah to the end of her own resources so that she might learn again what it means to trust him utterly. But he had not abandoned and would not abandon her or us, ever. In response to these words, I love what the people do. They stay, they remain silent. They just stand there. Because King Hezekiah had commanded them. How brilliant. Barry says that there are times when silence is the most eloquent testimony to those who we are and to whom we serve. So this is a time for you to just think just a little bit. What do you think Hezekiah will do? What resources do you think he'll call on? And I wondered if you guys would talk to each other about that. Just a minute. Just take a minute and say, well, what resources do you think he has? It's okay. Talk to your neighbor. 
what resources do you think he has? And then we'll talk about it. <laughs> what do you think he's going to do? Started here, it's getting a little bit quieter. So, so this this is a little bit a 36, and the 36 is a little bit like a cliffhanger. You know, you're like, well, what is he going to do? Well, if you didn't, what, what kinds of things did you guys think about? Is what what he would do? How do you? Who wants to say something? <laughs> this is totally unfair. No. <laughs> Um, Hezekiah. Let's stick with Hezekiah. Okay. He's the dude. So, yes, Sarah. He can turn to Isaiah. Can turn to Isaiah. And pretend to listen. And pretend to listen. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What else? That's good. You could do that. That's a resource. Isaiah's a good resource. Anything else? Say it again. Fast, fast, and pray, right, Cheryl? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, there it is. He could make the bargain with them. It's not a good bargain. Bad one. Sarah? When people are dying and sick and they're praying to God, they often say, uh, if you make me well, I will do this. But what oh he yeah. Says to God is, I have done all this, you know, worshiping. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So why am I being punished? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't see anyone else. Okay. Well, he's got three resources, and yes, you guys are right. He has the prophet Isaiah. He has the Lord, and prayer. And he uses all three of them at once. Uh, he he goes to the temple. And this is the part I absolutely love. And I think we're going to like go through a little exercise with the same thing. And he takes this letter that he's received. And this letter is urging him, don't put your trust in the Lord. Uh, it lists the other nations that the kings of Assyria have conquered. And it says Jerusalem's going to be conquered too. So it's the big threat. It's the threat letter. And he takes the letter and he lays it out on the altar in the temple and he spreads it out before the Lord and he prays. You see, he had this other crisis. He's he's done this before. 
He knows how to pray like. He knows what is required. He knows there's only one who can help them. And he says, Oh, Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. And I'm sort of thinking, I don't know, I just can't help thinking of the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim that are on either side of the Ark. He's probably truly enthroned by the cherubim. Um, You alone are God of all. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth the ones listed on this paper, and more. You alone created the heaven and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord. It is true. The kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations. And they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But they could do that because they weren't gods at all. They were only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. So now, now, O Lord, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And I think this is why did God send these people to this region? To help them to learn that he alone is really and truly God. It's a magnificent prayer. It arises from a deep and true understanding of who God is. It begins and ends with God, who Hezekiah asks, might be glorified in this immediate situation, and his prayer did not go unheeded. In fact, Hezekiah has barely had time to rise from his knees before he receives an answer. And the Lord says, because you have prayed. This is the word that the Lord has spoken. Because you have prayed. What do you think about prayer like this? Have you ever had a time where this reality of prayer has captured you? Where you were aware that as you prayed, God was drawing you up into his purposes, for he certainly has a purpose. He has a purpose for all of this. It's going to unfold in the next chapters. This is just the beginning of the unfolding. And he's involved you in what he is doing. It's the most amazing way to pray. And... You realize that even the desire to pray is a gift. Because you see, he's about to bring Assyria to heal. His word was for Hezekiah's ears. Sennacherib never heard this word. But as he addresses the king of Assyria, which is the way he responds, he lets Hezekiah know that all is under his sovereign control. Verse 26. Have you not heard? I decided it long ago. This was my plan. Long ago I planned it, and now I'm making it happen. And then we read at the end of the chapter that overnight, 185,000 of the Assyrian army are killed by the angel of the Lord. Overnight. So what does the king do? This arrogant, pompous, bloated, self-confident king? He breaks camp and goes home, just like God said. And stays 
and stays there. And here's the clincher. Verse 35. For my own honor and for my, the sake of my servant David, I will defend this city. Why did he do it? Because God keeps his promises. Not because of Hezekiah's piety. It wasn't because he turned to people and he did all that and they did this. And it was because God keeps his promises. I personally, I feel a sense of relief about that. Because I can rely on God's righteous character and not my own efforts at obedience or holiness. They're so not enough. Thanks be to God. Well, application. So I ask, and perhaps you may ask, how do we react to the enemy at the gate of our own lives? We certainly have them. Personal loss. Family strife. Illness. Financial distress. Stressed out marriages. Loneliness. Isolation. The enemy's at the gate. And we find ourselves in these circumstances where we are so out of control. Just like Hezekiah. And we are squeezed so tightly that we can hardly breathe. Our resources are depleted. Our face is to the wall. There's nowhere left to turn. And then there's that voice. The one that says the things that cause us to loosen our resolve, whatever we have left, to corrode our confidence and to do nothing but to instill fear. And we're like that horse that's cornered in the corral, running and running and looking over to the other pasture where perhaps we might find help. Perhaps. And the Lord, the Master, is in the corral with us. Just waiting. Waiting for us to wear ourselves out. And turn and look at him. So that he might lay his reassuring hand on us and begin to lead us in the way that we should go. That we might follow him that we might know him. And sisters, my dear sisters, we must pray. And pray like Hezekiah. You can write down on a piece of paper what the enemy at the gate is boasting against you. You can think of it right now. I know every single one of us can identify the enemy at the gate. And we can write down what the voice has been telling us. And you can you can kneel by your bed like it's an altar. Like Hezekiah did when he knelt by the altar and laid it out for the Lord. And the Lord will draw you up into his purposes. And the Lord will hear your prayer. And he will see your tears. And the Lord of the psalmist who wrote these words that are found in Psalm 118 um, We'll do this. This I got this from the Tree of Life version, which is a, a version uh, or translation that's been, uh, used by Messianic Jews. So the word Adonai means Lord. Verse 5. Out of, out of a tight place, I called on Adonai. Adonai answered me with a spacious place. 
Adonai is for me, I will not fear. I will not fear. I will not fear. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can that enemy at the gate do to me? Adonai is for me as my helper. I will see the downfall of the enemy at the gate. Sisters, let's pray. Let all that we are wait quietly before you, O God, for our hope is in you alone. You alone are our rock and our salvation. You are our fortress, and we will not be shaken. Our victory and our honor come from you alone. You are our refuge, a rock no enemy can reach us. We will trust in you at all times. We pour out our hearts to you. For you, O oh God, are our